Well, hello. Um, we have a lot of fun uh, in the Everyday Church staff team. Uh, I, I want you to know we work hard as well, but we have a lot of fun. A few weeks ago, found Andy Tuck and myself, both brought up in the UK, admittedly a, a couple of decades apart, uh, trying to explain to Christina, who was brought up in Italy, how the British game of conquers works. You know conquers, these seeds from the uh, horse chestnut tree. And there's Andy holding up, it's too early in the year for actual conquer. So Andy's holding up his imaginary conquer on an imaginary bit of string. And I'm taking my imaginary conquer on my imaginary bit of string. And I'm smashing his to pieces. We're in John 12 this week. And in his commentary on John 12, Tom Wright talks about the potential of conquers. They can become huge trees that live for hundreds of years, have beautiful flowers on them, and will in turn produce thousands upon thousands of conquers. There is huge potential in a conquer, but only if you stick it in the ground and bury it. Things are coming to a head in John's Gospel. Lazarus has been raised from the dead and the word about this is spreading and people are wanting to know all about what happened. This man come back from the dead. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and crowds have followed him as he rode on a donkey making this overt statement that he is the Messiah coming to deliver his people. The leaders who are opposing him are worried and they're saying, surely the whole world is coming after him. And then as if on cue, John begins to tell us, he tells us in uh, John 12, picking it up at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. That's the Passover festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. These Greeks turning up is exciting. It looks like the message is spreading beyond Israel about who Jesus is. And, but it throws the disciples into confusion. Uh, um, Philip is going to Andrew, what are we going to do? Andrew and Philip together are going to Jesus and saying, what do you want to do about this? These Greeks are here, they want to see you. Um, their confusion is because their whole mindset is that Israel is a separate nation. And yet here there are people from other nations wanting to look in and see what is happening. Jesus has been hinting through his ministry though that this is good news for the whole world. Jesus replied to his disciples is a bit cryptic. Let's pick it up in verse 23. Jesus replies to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, 
and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. You can imagine Philip and Andrew looking at each other. A simple yes or no would have done. We just want to know, will you see these Greeks? What's all this about seeds dying and falling into the ground? And what is it all about? You know, this principle of death and multiplication, it makes sense when you're talking about seeds. These were farming people. They knew that's how it works with seeds. But Jesus is talking about people. He's talking about himself and his followers. We all know that seeds multiply when you put them in the ground. But not people. I've been to a fair few funerals, as probably you have. And they would have. When you put a person in the ground, that's where they stay. That's sort of the end of the story. That's why it's so painful. Jesus is saying to Andrew and Philip when these Greeks want to come to him, he's sort of saying it's too soon. It's too soon. This recurring theme through John's gospel as these signs have been performed, Jesus has repeatedly said, my time has not yet come. These Greeks have turned up like the day before the party. We're not ready yet. Jesus has got nothing for you yet. Not until he lays down his life into the ground so that it can multiply. Jesus in this sort of period of his ministry in the last week before the cross is preparing his disciples for his death and his separation from them. I love what John reveals to us about the humanity of Jesus in this passage. As Jesus begins to explain to his disciples, unless this seed falls into the ground, it's as if emotionally the reality of what's about to happen dawns on him too. And he says in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It's heart-wrenching, isn't it? But then he says, no, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I find this insight into the inner emotional life of Jesus very helpful. Jesus found it difficult to do what God was asking of him. We've got to banish any idea that he drifted through life, floated through life a foot above the ground, not touched by any of the trouble and the pain that touches us. No, he was right in the middle of it. He found it difficult to do what God was asking him to do. He was human. He didn't want to die. But he doesn't back off. You know, there's no bravery if you're not scared. There's no obedience in doing what you wanted to do anyway. When I'm struggling with fear of what's in front of me or with the cost of following Jesus, I find it incredibly helpful to see Jesus as my example. There is no sin in struggling. You're not sinning because you struggle. Obedience is to struggle and then do it anyway. That is what obedience is. 
Jesus is the one who says to us in John 14, 1, it's a bit later, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust God. And yet here he's saying, now my soul is troubled. Jesus shows us that finding peace can be and often is a battle. And he shows us how to fight that battle. My, uh, I love going for walks in the countryside, always have. And uh, when our boys were little, or particularly when they were teenagers, we'd often be up in the mountains in the Lake District or somewhere, or somewhere on the west coast of Scotland. And there'd be moments when I've got the map out and a compass and a puzzled expression on my face. And the boys would be saying, Dad, are we lost? We're not lost again, Dad, are we? Teenagers, you know. And I'd be, saying, I'd be indignant about this. No, we are not lost. We are finding our way. <laughs> There's a difference. I used to say that to my boys on country walks. Now I say it in leaders' meetings. <laughs> where we just say, what are we going to do? We're not lost. We are finding our way. Jesus shows us how to find our way. He looks up. He takes our bearings by looking into the steadiness and the solidity of God, the Father's love for him and presence and sovereignty in all things. He talks to his Father. That's the most important thing to do when you're struggling. Look up and talk to your Father. Tell him how you are feeling. And Jesus draws strength from his Father in those moments. And the Father answers this voice comes from heaven. It tells us in verse 28, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father is saying to the Son, even in your turmoil, you are shining for me. We need to know how to find this strength the same way that Jesus did. Because Jesus in talking about this principle of death and multiplication isn't just talking about his own life he's talking about yours too this principle of the seed that the way to fruitfulness and multiplication is death he's talking about it for himself plainly there's something unique in his death at this moment in history Jesus is the one man on earth, one man, single, who is in perfect relationship with God the Father, who is drawing his life from the Father, who has full favor before the Father. Unless he lays down that life to pay the penalty for our sin, to break the curse of the hold of death upon us, he remains single. It stays just him. There's no way in, not for the Jews, certainly not for the Greeks, and even more certainly not for you and me, unless that seed dies and falls in to the ground. God's plan isn't just for one seed. His plan is for a multitude, a multitude that includes you and me. So Jesus goes on to say, John tells us in verse 30, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, John says, to show the kind of death he was going to die. His death, his being lifted up on the cross, makes way 
the multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation for you and for me. If you're trying to work out what it means to be a Christian, please put out of your head that it's about lifestyle choices. Please put out of your head that it's about moral codes or trying to be a better person. It starts with death, with Jesus being lifted up. What you believe about that is what determines your eternal destiny. When you're saying, yes, that's where my righteousness is. That's where my sin is accounted for. That's where my shame is removed. Jesus' death serves a unique purpose in history. But it also sets a life example that we, if we're his followers, can't avoid. Jesus says, just jumping back again to verse 25, Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This principle of multiplication, fruitfulness through death applies to us too. Your life is like a seed too. Your talents, your opportunities, your possessions. It's like a seed in your hand. If you hold on to it, live for yourself, take the easy route, all you have at the end is a seed. But if you let it go, if you surrender, if you let it fall to the ground, it will multiply. Jesus promises this before anything you imagined. This is upside down thinking. That's why Jesus says in verse 31, judgment is on the world that lifts itself up. We see this principle in relation, uh, when it comes to our relationships with other people. The selfish person who tries to make every relationship work to their own advantage ends up with no real friends. The marriage where each part is trying to just get what they want and what they need ends up being an impoverished marriage. But the one who lives for the benefits of others ends up with a multitude of friends. But it's not immediate. These are investments. This is the principle of the seed going into the ground. There's a gap between the sowing and the reaping. We also say, see this in our relationship with God. Yeah, it could be, David Pawson suggests this, that the Greeks are just coming looking for a spectacle. They've heard about Lazarus. They're just curious. They just want a spectacle. Show us another miracle. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you a show. I want your life. If your motivation in coming to church is just the buzz of a worship experience or some therapeutic, pseudo-spiritual experience or just the warmth of friendship and fellowship that you'll find here. Yeah, all those things are here. Jesus is saying, I want your life. I want your life. All in. Nothing held back. You know, this is why, <coughs> excuse me, this is why baptism is the gateway step of obedience. Because we literally act it out as we go into the water and we say, I am dead. I am buried. 
All that I am, all that came before is gone and buried. Now Jesus, I'm raised up to new life in you. That's why baptism is such a key step of discipleship. It's the first step of discipleship, which will lead to all the other steps that are to come. So here's the question. Does following Jesus feel like death? I don't mean does it feel like inconvenience, like sticking your name on a serving rotor, or dropping some money into the offering, or mild embarrassment because someone at work has found out we're a Christian and takes the mick a little bit or asks some awkward questions. I mean, does it feel like death? Jesus said elsewhere, Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is saying up front, and you need to hear this, we can't soft soap this if you are considering following him. He says plainly, it will cost you everything. But many of us don't think he's serious. Here's my observation. Gay men and women get it. They know up front that following Jesus will cost them everything. My experience, Muslims get it. They know that if they stop following Muhammad and start following Jesus, it will very likely cost them everything. That's why the decision to follow him for them is often such a struggle. But when they choose to follow, they become such magnificent disciples. The danger is, some of us, I include myself in this, the cost is sometimes hard to see. If you're a family man or woman, where's the cost in joining a church? It's a lovely community that lays on all kinds of stuff for your kids. Where's the cost? Sometimes, because we can't see the cost immediately, we imagine there isn't one. And Jesus makes it plain there always is. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it stays alone. Is there an area of your life that you're struggling to say yes to Jesus in? That effectively you're holding onto the seed and saying you can't have? I need to keep that safe. There's no shame in having a struggle about it. In fact, if you're not struggling, you're probably not understanding. <laughs> Jesus struggled. Maybe it's about your reputation, about what people think about you. Maybe it's about a particular relationship, someone that you know you're going to have to let go of if you're going to follow Jesus. That's often the most painful cost of all. Maybe it's some sinful behavior pattern that is such a source of comfort and enjoyment to you in the moment, but you know it's not leading to an eternal harvest. The opposite. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe it's simply your time. You're just keeping hold of. I want to urge you. Let go of it. Let it fall to the ground. See what Jesus can do with it. You know, I love the HBO Band of Brothers series, 2001. You might remember it. It follows this uh, easy company, troop of American paratroopers from D-Day through to the end of the Second World War. And uh, there's this one character in it I love. He's called Lieutenant Spears. And he's the most courageous. He's the most brave. And there's a particular scene where everyone's pinned down and hiding and 
He's the one who gets up and charges forward and brings the breakthrough in that particular battle that they're in. And afterwards they're saying to him, how or why are you so brave? And his answer is, because I'm already dead. He says, I died on D-Day. I'm not scared anymore. You're already dead. That's what baptism <laughs> establishes. Look back to your baptism and say, I'm already dead and buried. Everything from here on is just seed for Jesus. What does this multiplication look like? Well, we should know. We're part of it. Jesus laid down his life, one seed. And the early disciples gave their lives in courageous acts of surrender and service and proclamation. And that seed has multiplied and multiplied until it's reached even you and me. It's a multiplication in our experience of God so that we hear his voice and as we get used to hearing his voice and following his voice, we hear it more. We encounter his presence more and more. Jesus is clear, it's a fruitfulness that continues into the age to come. It's an eternal harvest. Now I haven't got time to go into the rest of uh, John chapter 12, but it's got some profound things to say about light and darkness. For example, verse 46, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light so that, the, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. He's saying, there are those who see me and there are those who don't. You cannot be neutral when God speaks to you. You either become harder to God's voice and head towards the darkness, or you become softer and yield more and more to him. <laughs> the essential thing for you and me to get hold of today is if you hear his voice today, respond to his voice today, because Jesus is saying you don't know how long that light is going to keep shining for you. Perspective and vision is everything. When it comes to farming, such vision for a farmer to stick, stick his seed into the ground. And let, he only does it if he's got confidence that there is going to be a harvest to come. It's an act of faith. The same is true of discipleship. Perspective, vision is everything. If all you see is what is in your hand, then farming's not for you. Discipleship is not for you. There are easier ways to live. And it's not our job to judge you if that's the way that you choose to live. But if you can see how temporary this world is, how fleeting its pleasures, how everything that you value and touch and see will one day be dust, then maybe you're ready to let that seed fall to the ground and let it die. It's a struggle. I don't want to do it. But Father, glorify your name. Let's see what God will do with people who live like that. God bless you.